Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on today's show, heatwave hysteria, the Tory leadership race and the end of Quidditch. So temperatures in Britain hit record levels, passing 40 degrees Celsius for the first time. I think it's fair to say there's been a lot of chaos, travel issues, railway lines buckling under the heat, airport tarmacs melting, some tragedy as well with fires and things like that in around London. But Tom, did it really meet the hype? do you think? Well, how could it? Because what was being preached was the apocalypse, <laughs> effectively. Um, it's worth looking back on some of the headlines of recent days, you know, talking about this uh, incredible emergency, talking about even young and healthy people are at serious risk and all this. And what it was, was a, a spell of unusually hot weather, you mm. know, the highest on record. That's significant. That poses infrastructural problems, health problems for certain people. But it's not the apocalypse. And yet every time we end up in this position. It, I think it just speaks a lot about the the climate of fear, if you like, at the yeah. moment, which is that a particular issue can't just be something which is something that needs to be taken seriously in terms of the weather and the climate. It's not something that we might need to mitigate against. It's not something that we might need to think seriously about to make sure that in the future we're better guarded against these things. It's the end times. It mm. burnishes the narrative and it uh, frog marches us into the proposed solutions to the climate issue which um, the people talking have favoured all along anyway. So I think you see a nice, in kind of microcosm, you see a nice kind of example of how everything is panic all the time now. Yeah. That's very pronounced in the media more so than it ever has been. And also it always seems to be to the end of trying to push you down a certain avenue of thinking and action. And that I think we've got to be very wide awake to. We had, you know, the former chief scientific advisor, Sir David King, warning of potentially up to 10,000 excess deaths from this heat wave. We've had, you know, the Met Office declaring its first ever red alert, not telling people that it had only come up with that system. Last June, I think it was introduced. We had the Health Security Agency saying this is a national heat wave emergency. I mean, Ella, what have you made of that side of it? This kind of almost like this bureaucracy of fear cranking into action in, in time for this event. I just don't understand why they think it works or it's necessary because people are so used to now that because of the pandemic kind of frame of talking about health, I think most of us now take any kind of warning like that with a pinch of salt. So it's, you know, it's possible that they'll have the adverse reaction that they want it to. But, you know, when you, everybody knows that, for example, in extreme weather, you know, babies and old people are particularly at risk because, you know, for various reasons, they have difficulty regulating their environment. It's, and that's not a kind of, that's not actually the fault of the sun or the environment. It's, it's, that's just a, a causal factor. It's the fault of them not being able to have access to the same things that I do. So that, no, it wasn't fun being seven months pregnant <laughs> and uh, in this heat, but you know, I didn't need to listen to the BBC to tell me to drink water. I wasn't sitting there eating crisps all day. I got this ridiculous email from um, my vet telling me that I had to put my cat in the shade. It's like, you know, <laughs> what? <laughs> you just, it, it's in, as Tom says, it's insulting, but it is also this kind of, you're right to call it sort of 
bureaucracy because so much of it is pointless when actually the things that should happen mm. don't. So there was this minister talking about the um, the railways and and you know catching on fire or buckling and things like that. And when he was asked in in, in Parliament, when he was asked, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, well, the problem is if you stress test them too low, um, then they'd buckle under the heat. And if you stress test them too high, then they don't deal well with the snow. And you're like, yeah. oh, so invent a better railway. You know, there's no innovation around it. And so then we just have this again and again and again. And in the winter, it'll be everything shut down because of a bit of rain on the track. Yeah, the, the ro- we'll have the wrong kind of snow uh, <laughs> come winter time. Mm. <laughs> Tom, what have you made of the sort of media's role in this? Because I've been struck by, um, it's been quite, I almost felt sorry for some of the people putting together the kind of BBC packages where mm. they're having to, you know, go out and say, you know, doom is coming and then you have ordinary people just having ice creams and saying it's nice and it's a nice day yeah <laughs> there's a big mismatch I, th- I loved how sky news had the classic kind of two camera mm. shot one of which was just aimed at the sun <laughs> <laughs> if, in case you've not seen it before <laughs> exactly it's a constant reminder and yeah there was this big mismatch um people get along with things in some cases quite enjoying the weather uh, but again, it being the apocalypse. And it's also, you know, worth remembering, yes, this was a record high temperature, but the record before this was, what, 2019, I believe. It was like 38.7 mm. degrees. I understand that some people make the argument that, you know, the difference between those two numbers is actually quite significant in relation yeah. to rail tra- railway tracks or whatever in terms of how it can affect infrastructure. But I think if you... No one remembers 20, the record high temperature <laughs> of 2019. It shows how much that um, even in that short space of time, although this kind of approach of the media and politics to catastrophize, mm. to present everything essentially as the end times to the end of feeding particular narratives around climate change and climate action or whatever has been building for a very long time, that we have seen that marked shift. The pandemic has certainly had something to do with that, uh, that kind of, you know, apocalypse from now on mm. almost approach that we seem to have. And it's a real problem, I think. And it's it's something which not only lends to a certain level of hysteria in the media, in officialdom, you know, guidance going out to people who work in care homes, suggesting that they should spray their elderly (laughs) residents with water from time to time, (laughs) hose them down effectively, you know, schools telling parents not to send their kids to school in jumpers, both condescending and and ridiculous all at the same time. But also it has a really paralyzing kind of effect on politics. This thing about fear mongering is either really trying to make you kind of freeze in your tracks Mm. or it's trying to say, this is the thing that we have to do. I think it's no... um, mystery why this week suddenly the discussion turned to you know all these Tory leadership candidates talking about net zero suggesting yeah. we need to slow it down again it just becomes a means of kind of frog marching you down a particular avenue um and it's a really kind of debilitating place to be you know rather than the, the climate being a particular issue that we should assess discuss work mm. out how we might want to respond to um it's the apocalypse and you have to do what i say that's almost how this is framed constantly and that's a real problem not just for dealing with these particular issues, but also just for politics in general. You can't conduct politics on that level without it becoming very anti-democratic very quickly. Absolutely. And it's it's all the more absurd because we know that, you know, as society has progressed, as, you know, people have got richer, we've been much better at dealing with problems associated with the climate, problems associated with weather. I mean, mm. in the past, you know, 100 years or so, the number of deaths from extreme weather events has plummeted. It's like 99%. Yeah, like 99, exactly, 99% or 100 years ago or something like that. Um, you know, even the losses to extreme weather in terms of just the economic damage that mm. weather is doing to us, um, there's no evidence of a kind of climate uptick. 
the damage from fires has been going down despite, you know, it's obviously horrible for those people who've yeah. lost their homes, things like that. But on aggregate, this is not a growing problem. And in London as well, there was a good piece on the Spectator website about this, talking about how even in London, fires have been on the decline over the recent decades. Um, but even what they call like secondary fires, which mm. would include things like grass flies, have also been significantly lower over the course of the past decade. Um, and you, you also could get into really difficult situation as Ella was suggesting earlier about um, how this becomes a kind of all-purpose excuse yeah. you know you see this in America with in places like California with the wildfires where a failure to do the sorts of thing that would prevent wildfires kind of clear the tinder effectively each year and to make sure that um, this doesn't become a huge problem uh, the failure to do that and the resulting devastation is just blamed on climate change mm. um, which could easily become a recurring problem and it also just it, you know intuitively gets things in a the wrong way around in the sense that, you know, particularly in this country, the issue in terms of loss of life is cold weather. It's not yeah. hot weather. I mean, I think that's even true, broadly speaking, on the international picture, at least there's some evidence. It's, it's true that. even in hot Mediterranean countries, mm. you're losing more people to cold weather. Like we don't have a summer fuel allowance mm. to help people pay for air conditioning. Like it's, you know, this is, there's a reason for this. So it just, I think intuitively it strikes people as very strange. And the reason for that is because this isn't really, a, this is essentially about pushing a particular political agenda, a particular set of climate policies, aimed at a particular set of goals. Um, and hence, it's just about kind of folding it into that particular narrative rather than having a serious discussion about what threat or potential problems a particular spell of weather might pose. Let's move on to talk about the Tory leadership race. We now have our final two contenders, uh, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Tom, are you excited about these two brilliant candidates? No. I mean, who is? I mean, I'm not sure people in their campaigns are trying to convince themselves. But it, it was getting to this point as the candidates were whistled down certainly to the last three anyway. But you do wonder what the hell the Tory party is doing. They got rid of their leader and they don't really seem to know why or who mm. they should have replaced him with. Yeah, I'd be and, amazed if anyone could name the scandal that brought him down yeah, well, even was, now, let so alone in a It feels like time. a million years ago. <laughs> but, um, Chris Pincher, God, well, for the ages. But now what they seem to be chasing is some kind of Thatcherite nostalgia or a sort of ersatz Blairite electability mm. and they're not even doing that very well and it just the sense that this party is just really kind of out of steam out of ideas kind of pointless has been really made ultimately clear you know they don't even have particularly impressive individuals yeah. let alone ideas programs whatever and i think that the sunak truss head-to-head mm. is a perfect embodiment of that just how spent the tory party is in many respects I think we should watch this short clip of Liz Truss in her prime opening up pork markets in Beijing. And we are selling tea to China. Yorkshire tea. In December, I'll be in Beijing opening up new pork markets. We import two thirds of our cheese. That is a disgrace. <laughs> Ella, I mean, it's not the, not the most uh, compelling of choices ahead of us, is it? No, and if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Because, <laughs> I mean, this is going to be that, you know, even those of us who don't support or, or that have never been that interested in the Conservative Party understand that this is going to be the Prime Minister. Yeah. And, you know, not to sort of be the party pooper, but this is, country is facing a series of very serious crises. 
Um, and the idea that you'd have Sunak or Truss at the helm. I mean, I, I've in the last podcast, I really went in for Sunak and bitched about him. So I feel at leisure to now go for Truss. I mean, having this kind of person who has proved herself to be so intensely incompetent time and time again, particularly on issues of um, of you know international diplomacy, is actually quite scary mm. at points. But, you know, you watch Boris Johnson's um, sort of series of finale speeches and you'll remind, even though, yes, all the criticisms that we've made of him, you know, being um, incompetent himself politically, but also the kind of the lying, the sort of taking things for granted, all of that still stand. But when you watch him at PMQs and you see the way in which he's able to just be confident and, you know, to completely rip the piss out of Keir Starmer and remind everyone why actually he was so charismatic in mm. 2019 and why he did have some, he, he has some sense of having you know, a bit of balls to do things in comparison with this yeah. absolutely lacklustre, awkward, terribly rehearsed kind of performance from both Sunak and Truss personality is too much involved in politics and we don't want to become like America. And, you know, all those criticisms aside, you do just think that these people have, you feel that they are really only in it for to forward their own career and they've been kind of trained behind mm. the scenes to smile. And it shows you the kind of disingenuousness of their politics because it, they have neither politics nor personality. Well, it, it sort of speaks to their lack of ideas fundamentally, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, if you think about, you know, Tom, you hinted at this kind of Thatcherite tribute act yeah. of Liz Truss. I mean, she seems to have one idea, which is tax cuts and not much more else about her. Yeah, exactly. And has quite um, actively tried to kind of emulate the Iron Lady in a, in a in as you say, in a way that makes it look like the Tin Lady. Mm. I mean, it's really, really embarrassing. It speaks to that particular dearth of ideas. I mean, it's, it's a kind of um, expression, I think, of just how, again, kind of, spent a lot of the different factions in the Tory party are. I understand that a bit of talk about tax cuts and, you know, trying to pose as kind of steely on the world stage will give the Tory right a particular warm feeling. But if you genuinely think that this tragic Thatcher cosplaying individual is who needs to lead this country, is who will connect mm. with individuals across the country, who will provide an inspiring platform, you really have been out in the sun too long. Like this is really yeah. obvious. And it's the same true with Sunak, you know, I mean, first of all, because his, his message at the moment is basically harsh medicine. It's like, we yeah. need to be sensible and all this sort of stuff, you know, balance, you know, we need to fiscal, cons this is fiscal conservatism versus tax cuts. It's the great ideological schism, which is, you know, yeah. sort of opened up allegedly in this particular leadership race. And yet Sunak in particular, I think is a, is a perfect embodiment of that sort of, you know, post Blair, incredibly polished um, to the extent that he has ideas that he kind of wears them pretty lightly. And the mm. rest of it is basically a claim to competence and good governance, despite the fact he was presiding over this economic clusterfuck all of two weeks ago. So yeah. it, all of it just feels like it's happening in a kind of parallel universe, really. They don't seem to have the ideas that would rejuvenate their particular electoral position, nor just the ability to actually push forward the country at a particularly difficult point in time. And Ella, you know, whoever becomes prime minister, whoever becomes Tory leader, inherits an 80 seat or nearly 80 seat majority that keeps getting whittling, whittled down by every by-election. Um, they inherit the red wall as well. I mean, they're not going to retain that, surely. Neither of them has what it takes to really keep those voters on board. No, and I think you saw the the superficiality of the Tories' commitment to the red wall voters um, in a particular moment where, you know, in the same week that Rishi Sunak in a leader's debate was calling Liz Truss a socialist because of, you know, <laughs> because of their minute differences in relation to tax. Um, 
the Tory, the Tory party has passed legislation to uh, enable companies to hire agency workers to break strikes. Mm. So, you know, so a socialist party. I mean, this it just highlights the fact that actually when it comes down to the fundamentals of what the priorities of the Tory party are, Brexit seems far in the distance. I mean, you had, you know, to, to reveal the kind of ridiculousness of the way they think about Brexit, you had Penny Morden when she was still in the running saying, I'm going to get Brexit redone. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? You know, they, they just see it as as this kind of like flag that they can wave at people to get mm. us excited. Um, nothing in relation to any kind of economic development, even on a very sort of, sort of sound bitey phrase, no one's really talking about levelling up anymore. You know, it yeah. used to be the thing that they talked about and they don't talk about it anymore because their world has just shrunk to SW1. And yeah. that's all that's happening for them at the moment. If you go in and around the Houses of Parliament, as I sometimes am able to do, it's like, you know, it's like Christmas for them. They're so excited and you think, oh my God, about what? <laughs> so there's, you know, I think if I'm not in, I have no expertise to make political predictions, but it seems to me completely infeasible that either Sunak or Trust would have any kind of longevity. And actually the, the depressing thing is that there's, there's nothing that Keir Starmer and the Labour Party has to offer. They should not be celebrating or getting excited right now. And it looks like on the cards for the next few years, um, series of elections or kind of tests to the electorate in which people will just stay at home. People will not yeah. be interested because why would you get excited about any of these chumps? I think that's why Starmer is a bit is still a bit of a gift to them as far as he's so rubbish. I mean, yeah. and it is yeah. the sort of thing where even as damaged as Boris Johnson was, as much as his um, popularity had drained, as much as he'd been enveloped by these different scandals, he very much a kind of sense that he was a spent force. But at the same time, it was quite clear that they were much more concerned about Boris Johnson, were probably more concerned about Boris Johnson leading to the next election because he had something, yeah. right? There was still a bit of a Brexit afterglow or mm. there was still, you know, a way in which he might be able to reconnect with those voters who um, voted in 2019. Um, so you really don't know what's going to happen, but it is just striking on both sides of the House of Commons. There is a complete sense of kind of intellectual exhaustion you have both parties effectively chasing some sort of ghost of their former past whether mm. it's in the form of Blair or whether it's in the form of Thatcher offering up the usual kind of piddling tinkering um, solutions in a time where it's quite clear that the general system is under incredible strain in a time of a remarkable uh, multiplying crises and as a result of that you know you just it's really unclear where this is going to go um, but yeah it's just been striking how without wanting to fetishise personality and all the rest of it, just how kind of lacking in stature any of these individuals are to the point where, you know, as Ella was saying, you know, they, they genuinely make Boris Johnson like a political titan by comparison. And that's really been quite striking this week, I think. Quidditch, the sport <laughs> inspired by the Harry Potter novels. is Muggle Quidditch. Muggle Quidditch. Technically. I should, yes. The one played by real people with a broomstick <laughs> between their legs. <laughs> I feel like I almost need to spell that out. Yeah. There are in real life, there are people <laughs> who run around on broomsticks in a field pretending to be in Harry Potter, but not anymore because they're now changing the name to Quadball. <laughs> now, partly this is to do with the naming rights because Warner Brothers owns the name Quidditch, but also the various Quidditch governing bodies, I can't imagine such things exist, but there you go, <laughs> um, have tried to distance themselves from JK Rowling and her anti-trans views, as they put it. <laughs> Ella, what have you made of this? I'm so incredibly angry that I'm Your being made to talk <laughs> about Quidditch and that these people <laughs> are making me care about Quidditch. But it tells you something about the sort of complete childishness of the world of 
trans ideology and these kind of political spats that they would care that they, you know, that they they would take it upon themselves to have their kind of bureaucratic meetings to um, distance themselves from J.K. Rowling. And there's a point to be made about the fact that, you know, quite a serious point, that you have this assault on an author mm. who, you know, it, whatever you think about Harry Potter, and I think far too many adults care about Harry Potter, that really, that's the campaign I want to run, ban anyone over the read age of 12. Book. Yeah, yeah <laughs> reading it. Um but this, you know, very accomplished author who, let's remind ourselves, actually, you know, has enabled and has helped huge number of a generation of kids to read, you know, yeah. and, and that is to her credit and, you know, some wonderful books, has now been turned into the main villain of, of her fiction, like yeah. Voldemort figure, who no one can come anywhere near because she dares to have a political opinion that, by the way, most of the country holds. And so then you, you know, it's like the sort of politicization of everything that they can't just enjoy this stupid game from the stupid book <laughs> that they have to turn it into some kind of a political display um, that gets, that only will get applause on Twitter because, you know, I, if I'm going to be really cruel here, you know, I can imagine the people who play this sort of game. <laughs> Most of them probably are are actually not that politically interested. They're just kind of, you know, nerdy, sporty people who want to get on with it. Why do you have to turn it into this ridiculous political row? Ella, you mentioned uh, Voldemort, and I think it kind of is a case of <laughs> she who must not be named because, mm. you know, you've seen not only this renaming of, of the sport to quad ball, you've seen Rowling's name taken from schoolhouses, you've seen her name not appear in trailers for the kind of Fantastic Beasts films, you've seen her not appear in Harry Potter reunion specials and things like that. I mean, this erasure of the creator is just absurd, isn't it, Tom? It's, it's all a bit Commissar Vanishes. I mean, it's yeah. very, it's incredible. There's just an attempt to completely etch her out, not just to kind of push her out of polite society, but to kind of remove her trace from her own work and, mm. you know, legacy in that sense. And it's it's really, really odd. Um, and as you say, I thought with the, the HBO Max example, where they had this kind of reunion, you know, this... Um, those I, I thought that was fascinating because you know you had this huge film franchise obviously built off of the back of this very successful book and it has elevated the careers of let's be frank a lot of very ropey young talents in yeah. relation to that and yet all of them have been taking it in turns in recent years to denounce her in one way mm. shape or form you know um, whether it's Emma Watson or whether it's um, Daniel Radcliffe they've kind of at some point or another take uh, either in a kind of nudge and wink sort of way or actually quite explicitly basically said that they believe this smear and it is a smear that JK Rowling is some sort of anti-trans bigot and you think first of all just how incredibly ungrateful <laughs> yeah, yeah. this is I mean they would be nowhere were it not for JK Rowling um, it gives it this kind of weird neo-Maoist red guards kind of tint to it. Yeah. Um, but then also you do have this uh, phenomenon which is fascinating which is the younger fans um, particularly ones who are young young, you know probably weren't um, kids at the time that the yeah. books first came out but have since really got into the whole world of it and the franchise who are, again have this kind of horror and this kind of vitriolic response and you know TikTok videos of people burning their copies of Harry Potter books and all the rest of it. Even that New York Times uh, promotional video of actually was an adult imagining mm. Harry Potter without its creator. It just shows you how uh, how out of hand this whole thing has gone. Like it is not an exaggeration to say that for a slim but significant proportion of the population J.K. Rowling has been turned into a folk devil into mm. a, into a into a witch effectively nothing else could perfectly could capture the level of hysteria in relation to someone who only really said i'm worried about sex based rights in yeah. relation to the trans thing that's all she's ever really said so the 
complete and pretty devastating kind of character assassination is complete in the minds of large groups of people, even people who, you know, five minutes ago would consider themselves big fans of us. Ella, I mean, this is a serious issue that J.K. Rowling's trying to talk about, that she's being denounced over. Um, why do you think we're not capable of having those conversations? Well, because any discussion about sex-based rights or or just or just reality, biology, mm. reality, normal life, how people in a society define each other and relate to each other, um, has has like so many things like this is about white privilege, about um, you know misogyny now in relation to Love Island. It's become that you can't have a normal conversation. You have to either sit on two extremes, mm. um, either side of the fence. And for the vast majority of people, they have the kind of nuanced position that actually J.K. Rowling herself has put forward, which is that. You know, they're bl- people like her are blue in the face saying, I respect trans people. I think they're great. I don't want to do anything mean to them. I mean, for the vast majority of people, that is the default position because yeah. the vast majority of people aren't assholes. But by the way, I care about things like, you know, having different toilets and having different changing rooms because it, it plays an important role in society. So, you know, it might sound to viewers and listeners like a stupid thing about Quidditch and, you know, well, why should anyone care about this? But actually it's a symptom of a much bigger trend in society, both an intolerance in talking about women's rights, sex-based rights and all of that, but also a kind of really creeping philistinism in relation to how we approach art and individuals in society. Tom, final thoughts? I just think to, you know, at the risk of making a slightly clumsy connection here, you know, the fact that grown adults are running around playing Quidditch and the fact that grown adults are running around being upset by other people's opinions is surely part of the same problem. (laughs) But there is a real infantilization that has gone on Mm. whereby anyone who is made to feel that little bit uncomfortable by another person's view, even someone who in JK Rowling's case, you know, not that long ago would have been considered, even if she had maybe a different position on certain things, would be considered within the kind of lovey community of the good, if you like. Um, that that has completely broken down, that hysteria has taken over wholesale. And at the root of this, there's, you know, there's very different ways that you could cast it, that you could understand it, that you could see how we've ended up in this very intolerant, nasty climate. But at the root of this is a, is a kind of self-infantilization as well. Is These people are massive babies who can't deal with things that even ever so slightly upset them. Um, and if we tackle that, I think that's, we'd be a long way towards tackling that intolerance and maybe making sure that, you know, grown adults will learn to read another book and play a proper sport. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.